Hello and welcome to Rear View, the show where we get to chat to the fascinating people from the motoring universe, learning how they got to where they are today. I'm Andrew and this is episode 30. I'm delighted to be joined by Natalie McGloin, who is amongst many other things the co-founder of Spinal Track. Welcome to Review, Natalie, and I'd like to start off by asking, what is Spinal Track? Hi, Andrew. Um, so Spinal Track is a, um, an organisation that my partner and I put together at the beginning of last year. Um, when I started racing cars, um, I had quite a few people message me um, who were in a similar situation to me, uh, driving on hand controls due to some kind of injury or disability. And they were interested to learn how they could have a go at what I was doing. Um, and there just isn't anything out there or there wasn't anything out there before um, we started Spinal Track. If you wanted to do a track day on hand controls, you would have to do it in your own car. And usually wheelchair users have a suitable car for um, storing their wheelchair and families, and they aren't usually suitable for track days. So Andrew and I had bought a track-prepared Golf G GTI from a friend who is also paraplegic, and we just we bought it for track day use for ourselves. And um, Andrew was getting into instructing and finding his way in a... Um, in the motorsport industry career-wise, and it just all fell together. We said, well, hang on, why, why don't we create something here? So we decided that we would form an organization that would become a charity that would offer people who drive with hand controls the opportunity to experience track driving in our golf with instruction from Andrew. The most important thing about Spinal Track is that we offer these experiences for free. So um, our beneficiaries don't have to pay for their track day. We get funded by donations and companies like Silverstone um, who make this thing possible. Oh, that's excellent. I mean, well, okay, if we're going to be selfish about it, it's brilliant on the one hand that the two things can be combined um, for yourselves. Um, but what a, what a brilliant idea um, of of allowing or giving people the opportunity to try this out who wouldn't otherwise you know, get a sniff of this. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's great. Now, am I correct? Is it still correct that you are the only woman with a spinal cord injury to have a racing license in, in the uh, UK? Is it the UK or the world? I'm the first female and the only female to have one in the UK mm -hmm. with a spinal cord injury. I'm the only tetraplegic female to have a racing license in the world. So the difference between paraplegic and tetraplegic is paraplegics are people that have broken their backs, so have full use of their fine finger dexterity, etc. People who are tetraplegics are people who've broken their necks. So my paralysis affects my finger dexterity um, as well as my lower body function. So yes, I'm I'm I am still currently holding both of those titles. Unique, I think is the <laughs> it's the word. Um, so th this, uh, not that I want to dwell ages on this, but the the accident uh, that you had happened in your uh, teenage years, didn't it? Yes, that's right. Um, and then I, I presume this was a lengthy process of, um, and where I get this wrong, please do point out because I'm very ignorant on this, but I'm presuming that you went through a very lengthy process of physio and rehabilitation. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. What's, are, are we talking years, months? What's the... What was the sort of time scale? So 
I was in hospital for just short of a year um, doing my rehabilitation at Pinderfield Spinal Injuries Unit. Um, but to be honest, the real rehabilitation starts when you are in the big wide world, because if you're in an institution where everyone's the same and everything's set up for your needs, then it's not really replicative of, of real life. So uh, it, it's, I'll tell, tell you what, it's still ongoing. You know, getting, getting into motor racing is rehab for me. It, it, gives me. it gives me something that I can't get from any other stuff, any other kind of activity mentally. Um, so uh, the, the, the formal stuff takes or did take about a year. These days, it's, uh, I think you've chucked out after about three months, which uh, is all due to NHS funding. Um, mm. Just can't afford to keep people in. Um, but yeah, then my my wheelchair rugby was my real rehabilitation and my real start at, at moving forward with life. Uh, how did that come about? How how did, how did it? Because it um well it it wouldn't seem sort of the obvious thing to go and do. Uh no, well, none of the things that I do are obvi- the obvious choices. I, I think we may point a few of those out as we go along. <laughs> uh, but um. Wheelchair rugby. So I was first introduced to it when I was in Pinderfields doing my rehab Mm -hmm. and I was taken to a training session by my physio. This was just so that I could see what could be achieved. The men men that were there were, you know, they, they didn't have any barriers as to what they could do with their lives. They just got on with stuff. And um, Natasha, my physio, who's now a very good friend of mine, took me to that session to show me how I could live. Um, and the sport was exciting, you know, bashing each other out of the way in big caged wheelchairs isn't something you see every day. Um, so I, I had always planned to try and get involved with that since becoming aware of it during my rehab. Mm -hmm. And then when I went to university in Nottingham, there was a local team. So I joined that team and went to my first tournament and that was it. I was hooked. I knew that that's after I'd graduated, that that's what I would do. I had ambition for Paralympics and that was my life. That was my full-time job, training five days a week. Um, I was very happy with it. Because you re- you represented Great Britain, didn't you? It's, it, uh, I did, you, not you, at the Paralympics. It doesn't sound like you go into these things half-hearted <laughs> at all. Well, sport, sport, unless you give it everything, what's the point? Uh, that's my yeah. attitude. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean... I was involved with the GB squad for a good number of years and um, I ended up going to Rio uh, in 2008 to represent my country um, and trained with um, the elite squad on the development squad for a couple of years. It was, yeah, it, it just, it was my way of, of getting over and coming to terms with what happened to me. Um and as soon as I became immersed in that um, that sport, I just I became I, I grew as a person. I, my confidence grew, my ability to do things improved, and instead of being the girl at school who had been paralysed and was now reliant on people and you know weak and all the rest of it, I was an athlete, you know, competing on level terms with big men 
it's mm. a, it's a mixed sport. So uh, men and women play together, but females get a half point reduction in their because um, you're classified in terms of your ability and your physical function. Okay. Females get a half point reduction because men are physically stronger than women. Um, but yeah, it was you know I was I was doing this thing because I was in a chair. It wasn't something I was doing in spite of it, and it was. It was just a whole a whole new chapter and a whole new way of, of, of thinking for me. So when you say you, uh, you really developed as a person, do you think um, it was the, the, the mental side of things and the sort of psychology of what had happened and coming to terms with that and realising that it's, it's not the way to define you? I think so. Um, I think I, I'm very, very careful that I, I, I hardly ever refer to myself as disabled. I think defining yourself as disabled has pure negative connotations and no positive ones. And I I will refer to myself as injured. In my mind, I was injured in a car crash. I suffered an injury. Um, But for me, injuries are things that you can overcome and recover from. And if not physically, at least mentally. And and wheelchair rugby and sport was my recovery. And it was – it just – it was – the, the, the participation in such an aggressive sport just took away those negative connotations of disability and replaced them with feelings of strength and empowerment and, and being able to do whatever I wanted to do. So it helped you to then, uh, or it would help one to look at something and go, right, how can I do that? Not I can't yes. do that, but how can I do that? I I've, I've, I need to make uh i need to come at it from a different angle maybe but how can i get to that yeah i think um one of the things that i say in my because i do um talks at spinal units for people who've suffered spinal injuries to show them that it's not it's not the end and i think one of the things that i am really positive about um telling people and how i try to live my own life is that life after spinal injury doesn't have to be any worse. It just has to be different. Mm -hmm. And I think rugby helped me embrace that. Okay. Um, So how long were you, do you, do you still play? I do. I, um, I, I play at a very uh, club level um, locally. I've just, this is my first season back in actually. Um, So I I had my last tournaments of the season three weeks ago Mm -hmm. and, um, I won best in class for the tournament. So, oh, wow. Well, congratulations. Well, I felt like a bit of a fraud because most of the people in um, the Division 3 are, are brand new to the sport and I've been playing for many, many years. But like I said, I'd, I gave it my everything because I don't know how to do it any other way. So, you know, it, it was it was nice to win that. But again, felt like a bit of a fraud. <laughs> but I, I'll take it anyway. <laughs> Put it on the mantelpiece. <laughs> yeah, I have. <laughs> so um when did uh when did your attention turn to cars and that again uh i think this is a theme that we'll run throughout uh, <laughs> it doesn't seem an obvious choice to go what, uh, for cars and, and then you know perhaps quite powerful cars <laughs> especially when they haven't got the room really to store your wheelchair yeah not not the, the most <laughs> The most practical choice, but um, I, um, I think I, I bought my first sports car when I was at university. I'd um, I'd got a compensation claim for my accident, and um, 
worked hard to get I worked hard to get my A levels and mm-hmm. decided that I would you know a car's important to me. It's my it's my freedom. It's my independence. So I kind of so were cars have... always a thing for you? No, no, I, I didn't learn to drive until I was twenty. Okay, um, and it was just cars became so important to me because that you know it's not as easy for me to just push to the shop or Mm. get on a bus or whatever. So cars were my freedom. As soon as I got my driving license, I was no longer reliant on anyone else or anything else to do whatever I wanted to do. So they, you know, they were again, a step in, in a different direction or or a a better direction. When I got that driving license at university, it just opened up my opportunities. Mm. So I kind of figured, well, why not, why not treat yourself to a nice one? So, So what did you get? Well, I, I went to Porsche to as buy, one does, as one does, and to have a look at their Boxster, and um, I had a look at what I usually assess uh, as to whether the car is accessible for me. Could I get in and out of it? Would my chair fit? Were the controls um, compatible with hand controls, etc.? Everything was great. I really liked the choice that I'd made, and. Um, I left the dealership with the intention of going back in the following week to place an order for one. Um, as I was leaving, I saw the 911. I, I didn't. I didn't really like it. I it. To me, it was too big. I didn't like the shape of it. Just didn't really know much about it. I saw it was more powerful. Didn't really know much about power at the time, so didn't really register what that meant. And I, I still, I left the dealership with just disregarding it and, and focusing on the Boxster. I went to my friend's house, a, a very good friend of my wheel, wheelchair rugby team um, mate, who uh, told him about the car shopping. And I talked about the Boxster. I mentioned the 911. And he just cut me off mid-sentence and said, don't be so ridiculous. The 911 is a driver's car. You won't be able to handle it. Oh, dear. So I, I went and bought one just to prove him wrong. <laughs> and uh, that's, how, that's how it started. <laughs> So, okay, fair enough. That's as good a reason as any, because someone yeah. said I couldn't. Well, that's usually how these things start. For including myself, or especially myself, what uh, what do hand controls actually mean? Because I've okay. never seen them, so I'm, I'm sorry, I'm a bit ignorant about this. I'm quite a lot ignorant, but they're they're really really simple bits of kit. So you buy a normal car, mm-hmm. you get a hand control company to fit the hand controls to the existing pedals. So basically, they're a rod system that form a lever to the right-hand side, usually the right-hand side of the steering wheel. And um, there are variations of, of what which ones you get. My road car has push-pull, so the lever will... I will push it towards the dashboard to brake, and as I do that, it will depress the brake pedal, mm-hmm. or I will pull it towards me to accelerate, and then it will depress the um, the accelerator. Um, but my race car has radial controls, which are exactly the same mechanism in terms of the rod system, but you push forward to brake, <clears throat> and you push down to accelerate, which means that you can kind of um, left foot brake oh, so yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. both on at the same time just mid-engine car it just settles the car a little bit better if you can minimize that crossover between braking and accelerating oh, okay so so it's all right so it's not it's not a massively terribly complicated bit of kit 
No, they okay. take, you know, an hour or two to fit. And when I sell the car, I take them off and it's... Uh, right. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, it's brilliant. Brilliant idea. You you still drive the cars on the pedals as well. Mm. So oh, yeah. Andrew, my, my partner, drives the cars with his feet. And when I get in, I drive with my hands. And there's no... You don't need to do anything. There's no nothing to remove or to put in place for either person to drive the car. It's just good to go. Okay. It's, they're brilliant. They're really, really clever bits of kit. Sometimes the simple things are. Um, I mean, yeah. I know I know it's not dead simple, but, you know, well, they are- I, I was imagining, you know, potentially there's a lot of modification having to be made and things like that, but because no. I have no idea, you see. So, all right, I'm, I'm very impressed with that. Um, okay, so you get this 911. Do you do yeah. you take your friend out in it and scare the bejesus out of them? I don't actually. I don't think I have. Okay, you may want to add Let's, that to your to do yeah. list. Yeah, I might. Or take them round the track. Yeah, too powerful. <laughs> well, I I take him round the track in my race car to show him what real fear feels like. Um, <laughs> but yeah, this is something that I definitely need to do because this is. You know, the 9-11 story is um, a story I tell quite often during interviews and different bits and pieces because it is, you know, it's 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 how it started. Um, mm. So I think to round off that story, he needs to come out on the track with me. Yes. I will make that happen. Yes. And I will report back. <laughs> uh, and when he's weeping at the end. <laughs> I told yeah. you it was too much power. <laughs> Brilliant. You've moved. Have you still got that nine eleven, or have you moved on? No, many, many, many nine elevens later. I um, okay. I used to trade trade them in um, for the first nine eleven I got. I wanted it quickly, so I just bought one off the shop floor, which didn't have electric seats, which meant which meant that when I got in and out of the car, I would have to get in, put my chair in, get my legs back out of the car. And then push on the door frame and hold onto the steering wheel oh, okay. and pull the foot of the chair. It was it was awful, but I was impatient, so I just I went with it. Um, so then I traded that in for a one with electric seats. And then when the second gen came out, I bought a second gen, and then I discovered the 911 turbo. Uh, and there was no and there was no <laughs> turning back from that. Everything was slow after that. Yes, and tire manufacturers all around the country rubbed their hands with glee. <laughs> Indeed, they do. <laughs> <laughs> when did the racing start? So I um, I had an injury in it was either the was it the beginning of two thousand and I think it was the beginning of two thousand and twelve, and I was put out of rugby for good six months. Nine, it might have even been nine months, and. I know six months and then I started training again and I went to uh, some GB trials to get back onto the squad and my passion for the sport had just died. I didn't feel the same thing that I felt about this sport for as long as I've been playing. And I thought I can't do this five days a week and sacrifice everything that needs to be sacrificed. If I don't absolutely love what I'm doing, Mm. it's too intense. I've, I, I'm an honest believer that if you don't have passion, you can't be successful. Um, so I decided that I would take a back seat from the rugby and do something else. And the something else was getting my race license. And at first it was, it was just going to be the license. So I just thought I'd been doing track days for 
six or seven years. And I thought that the next natural step from that would be to go racing or to get the race license. But the race license was just going to be a certificate. And I didn't feel the need to do anything more than that. Mm. But before I knew it, I'd bought a Cayman. <laughs> I'd entered into the Porsche Club Championship. And... <laughs> okay, so how, how did that happen then? How did you go from... Was it just the the extra level of intensity to get that racing license just pushed you into a new area that you went, oh, I, I like this a lot, actually. I mean, I enjoyed driving around the track, but this is this is a different level. Was it that? Mm, no, I think it was always, always going to go. It was always going to go the whole way because that's how I do things. So I think I just, I think the magnitude of it was probably get the race license because that's achievable. And then the racing just kind of happened. And I think that that's probably how I processed it. Um, but I think I always knew that it would be, it would be a race and a race car in the end, because what's the point? <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, there is, there is that. How long did it take you to get your racing license? And how long after that were you actually racing? So I started down the route of the license in November 2013. I didn't actually have my license rubber stamped until April 2015, three days before my race, my first ever race. Um, that's that's quite cutting it quite close, is it not? Uh, yes, some would say. <laughs> some would say. But I... I I embarked on the, uh, I did my ARDS test um, before I did um, any of the safety procedures. So when you drive with hand controls or any kind of adaptations due to disability or injury, um, you have to prove that you are safe in a competitive environment on the hand controls. And that means that you have to do four hill climb or sprint events, as well as demonstrate a seven second unaided exit from the race car um, before the the license is rubber stamped. So... I did my arts test and passed and then had to do all of the rest of the things to get the um, the certified license. And I was with a, a team that was the wrong team to be with in the first instance who was who were pressuring me, pressuring me into going racing in 2014. And I just wasn't ready. Mm. Um, so luckily... I was introduced to James Cameron, who runs Mission Motorsports, um, by Hannah Burgess. And Jim pretty much saved me from the other team that I was with and took me on as one of their own. I was a commercial customer, but they, they built my race car. And because of all of the expertise that they had with the soldiers, I was gifted all of that knowledge and all of the right way to do things from almost from the outset. You know, if I'd been with them from the beginning, it would have been better. But yeah, that was, that was a Jim. Jim is the reason that I was able to get my race license. If it hadn't been for Jim, I don't think it definitely wouldn't have been as easy. And, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a good relationship that Jim, Jim and I have because, um, he sees the value of what racing can do for people with injuries. And I think that that's, that's why he invested so much time in me um, to getting me where I needed to be before the, the, the first race of the season. Yeah. We, we uh, on the podcast, Alan and I 
uh, are big fans of Mission Motorsport and we do shout yeah. about it quite often. Um, I think it's a there fantastic is. thing uh, yeah. that they do uh, and it's and it's brilliant to see. Right, you're the first racing driver I've had on here. Okay. So, uh, and because there's a theme from my side, ignorance, um, mm-hmm. I'm going to ask you, what does it take to get a, a, a racing license? Well, for an able-bodied person... Well, what are the steps you you have to go through? I presume you have to show competence at, at particular things. Uh, it's pretty much like a road license. You do a practical test on a circuit where you you either pass or fail. If you're competent and, and safe and can show that you would be um, able to be on a, a race circuit with other cars and, and, and do what's necessary, then... They will they will pass you and you have to do a theory test. So uh, much like the theory and written test on the road, but the theory test for racing um, needs to demonstrate that you know all of the safety procedures. So all of the flags, all of the, um, the the codes that are in place, and anything you need to know, so that if anything happens on the circuit, you know what's going on. Right, because uh, I, pre- I presumed that there was something about the flags and, and things like that, mm-hmm. um, but each branch of racing has their own little specifics do they no anything really. M- M- anything msa um certified uh goes through the msa and has to adhere to rules and regulations that the msa put out oh, okay. um sprinting and, and hill climbs aren't racing but they're most of them are msa regulated um rallying is obviously um Rallying is MSA, but uh, different rules. And then drifting, I think, is is non MSA. I don't think you need a license for drifting. Um, so, but most of the racing follows the same rules. Um, you just you need to know the safety procedures for whatever discipline you're competing in, and you need to have all the appropriate kit um, and make sure it's in date and, and compliance and all the rest of it. Because, like I say, I, I had no idea. Uh, so. Uh, with the help of Mission Motorsport, you get your license mm-hmm. three days before the first race. Uh, yeah. How was the first race? Was it terrifying, brilliant, uh, exciting, everything all at once? <laughs> uh, the first race was very, very good. The test day that I did before the first race was less so uh, because I almost wrote my car off before I'd even started. Oh. Um, and if you if you do a test day, you have to have a race license. Mm-hmm. So I'd, ne- I'd never done one before. Um, and it's it's just race rules, overtaking on either side, in the corners, down the straights, by consent or not by consent. It's, you know, I'd, and I'd never been in that situation before. Track days, you overtake on the left, only on the straights and only by consent. And that's what I was used to. And um, as I came into Paddock Hill Bend, I, um, I thought I was going in too quickly. So took my hand off the accelerator which caused um, it caused a spin, um, so lost the back, went into the gravel, and the momentum took me up onto two wheels. And uh, I don't know how it didn't go onto its roof. Still to this day, um, it was it was so close, so so close. I thought I thought in the car I was going over, um, but I didn't. And I went back to the the garage, and my mechanic sorted the car out, and. Uh, Qualifying the next morning was terrible because I I lost all of my confidence and forgotten mm. how to drive, and qualified second from last and thought, yeah, great, finished last in my first race, and then I'm, you know, everyone's going to think that I'm not I'm not good enough to be here, and 
all of those thoughts going through my mind. Um, but when I got into it, all that went, all the fear went. And I, it was just, it was brilliant. Those 25 minutes, I, I tried to put them into words, but I can't. It was, uh, it was a very momentous occasion for me. And um, Jim Cameron actually was in the same race with me. Uh, because in his words, he wanted front row seats to the biggest show of my life. And uh, <laughs> I can remember a safety car came out. I can't remember who crashed, but a safety car came out. Oh, I think there was a big pile up at Paddock Hill Bend. And um, as I caught up to the back of the tail of the, the cars in front, Jim was directly in front of me. And I think we were under safety car for two or three laps. And that helped me because it helped me just be in the race and just get to, you know, to grips with it. And I thought, right, well, I'm just going to follow Jim's lines. I'm just going to follow him in. I'm going to break when he breaks. I'm just going to do what he's doing. And then before I knew it, I overtook him down Paddock Hill. <laughs> and uh, he says that he's, he's never been more happy to be overtaken by anyone in a race before. Uh, but it was brilliant. It was, it was so much fun. So much fun. So did you did you feel that you had to do even better than the others? Because you mentioned there before, you know, oh, fear was, right, I'm going to be last. They don't think I belong, etc. Did you feel you had to do that much better? Um, did you ever have that feeling or did you ever get that impression that you needed to do that? No, I don't think I thought I had to do that much better because I was a female disabled racing driver coming into a predominantly male, able-bodied sport. I just, I want to win. Mm-hmm. Like that's my whenever I do anything I want to be the best it's it's always my drive for for anything in life just to to be the best that I can be and hopefully that means being better than other people <laughs> so I think that's where the ambition came from for not wanting to finish last it wasn't it wasn't because I felt I had anything to prove to because of my situation I just I had something to prove to myself yeah, yeah. Ah, excellent excellent so what what were you racing in, by the way? I don't think I've asked that. Uh, Porsche Cayman S. Okay. In the Porsche Club Championship. Uh, yes. <laughs> you know, like, let me say, you, like, like you. I mean, this theme is develop is really <laughs> gaining momentum now, going into things by halves, and you know, not yeah. really, not really pushing yourself in any way. <laughs> on slicks for the first time in that test day, I've never driven on slicks before, and <laughs> people did say to me before I kind of got into the racing thing do you not do you not think you want to just get like a little mx5 or something something that maybe not as powerful as a cayman and i said well no it's got to be a porsche because that's how they started and that's that's it is only right and proper (laughs) yeah so so um was this the start of the the that season or was this part way through what the, uh, the your first race, race was it part of a uh, a calendar or oh no I, I I was in it from the beginning so oh, okay, that's when right. the race the season started so how did that um, season go uh, well I had absolutely no baseline so I just I just my my progress was exponential you know I just hmm. every time I did something it was better than the last time and um, I just I progressed really really quickly. Um, got to Snetterton and qualified 12th with a really quick time. Um, but then I, I was on some antibiotics and I didn't feel 100%. And in the race, I just bottled it. 
And I think that it was it was near the end of the season and I kind of carried that forward, um, which wasn't great. And even though I did really well in my first season, I think I, I, I finished mid-table. Um, I just wasn't happy with how that how the end of the season had gone and it clouded my judgment about what I had actually achieved during my first ever season of racing. Um, yeah, so- but what, but wasn't that going to happen though? I mean, if you if if you're doing something for the first time and exponentially yeah. things are going up, yeah. at some point you've got to hit a flat spot. Yeah, but I. But I know uh, what you mean though. You're you're, <laughs> you're saying that um, because you always push yourself harder and you're yeah. your own your own worst critic. You go. Yes. But I could have. Yes. And yeah, yeah, I, I get what you're saying, but. But it was always going to happen. Something was going to, yeah, I mean, to not be great. I'm, I'm good friends with um, Callum Lockie, and he says this to me all the time. He said, "You know, you'll you'll have days where you'll you'll improve so much, and you'll make so many steps forward, and then you'll have months of just plateau, and you might even go backwards. And but that's racing. You can't it can't keep going up all the time, especially at this stage of your career. So, you know." And he, he's been doing this for, you know, a long, long time. And I, I've had advice like that from other drivers as well. It's just advice like that is um, is always difficult to to kind of digest because my my will is so strong to, to want to better myself. Well, the, um, I think there's some lessons you have to learn yourself. Yeah, yeah. And you can, you can be told something like that, but you will sit there and say, uh, no, but I'm I'm different because I, I'm – I know I can do this type thing. Yeah, but I, 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 get, I completely get where you're coming from. Yeah. You're saying that it obviously didn't uh, end on the high that you wanted. So did you then get doubts about this or were you just a um, bit down about it? What, what was... Well, I wasn't, I wasn't massively down. I just... I could have done better at the end of the season. I just let my... Let what had happened at Snetterton get the better of me. Um and I, went, I did the um, Mission um, Motorsport Race of Remembrance in November at Anglesey mm-hmm. um, the same year. And we were part. Of, I put together an all-spinal injuries uh, race team in my friend Simon Andrews' VW Golf. Simon's a paraplegic who, who races. He's also got impairment of his right arm. And we had another couple of people come on board. And um, I, I just kind of went into the race... I tested his car at Bedford and I I loved it. Uh, My partner, Andrew, was really scared that I was going to get in it and go, this isn't my Cayman. I'm not used to it. It's front wheel drive. I'd never driven a front wheel drive car before. um, before Those Porsche don't make (laughs) No, well, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Um, So I I just, I had nothing to prove at Anglesey. I just thought I'd... Uh, the thing that we're doing with the all spinal injuries race team is is going to be good enough. Like Simon's a very very quick driver in um, in his championship. Talon we had come on board who was new to racing but had been racing motorbikes, and then Brian who we had was a very quick kart driver. And I just thought, well, you know, if I'm if I'm slower than these guys, that's okay. And it was raining. It was really really wet. What? And we'll see in November. Get away. <laughs> I know. Who believe it? Uh, but it was it, it was one of the storms that had blown in. The race was actually cut short two hours 
before the end because you could you could stand up in the pit lane against the wind it was it dried up on the sunday but it just the conditions were treacherous what year was this it was 2015 right i think i was at my parents house which isn't a million miles away from there and yeah. uh, yes even in the it house was, we're going it's a tad blowy out there i think we'll stay in yeah it, it was the kind of weather where you wouldn't really go to the shop you know you'd kind of bunker down and or hunker down and um just ride it out but there we were racing at Anglesey um over that hill that, <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> which, which is the first thing the wind hits off the Irish Sea <laughs> yes yeah it is but it was brilliant everyone everyone just gelled together and um and we had a fantastic weekend but that that weekend was I that was the start of me honestly believing that I had raw racing talent um because I can drive in the wet really well. Mm-hmm. And um, I used to be, I used to feel a bit reluctant um, saying things like that because I didn't want to come across big headed, but um, I'm quite Ooh, honest. With you're my... a racing driver. You're meant to say things like that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I'm quite, I used to be quite negative with the way I spoke about my racing because I didn't, I didn't want people to think that I thought I was doing better than I was. And I didn't want to take compliments that were, compliments on the grounds of you're a disabled female racing driver i only want compliments because i'm a racing driver nothing else matters mm-hmm. um but in doing that i created a bit of a negative uh, mentality which impacted on my racing which i've completely stamped out now so saying that i am good in the wet is because i am good in the wet and i um i qualified our team i was the quickest of all of our drivers we were all out in different sessions so you have four qualifying sessions the quickest person puts the time on the main grid with the rest of the cars. And I qualified us um, 11th out of 45 cars. uh, It was between 40 and 45, I can't remember. Um, But yeah, and I, my time was, was impressive. And I just, uh, given that I had no experience in front wheel drive and that it was a circuit that I'd never been to before and all the rest of it, I was really proud of that achievement um and that was something that i hoped i could carry forward into my next the start of the next season which would be at brands hatch indy again um but my my qualifying for that round was not great i'd done some good times in testing the day before couldn't put it down in qualifying qualified 18th um finished the race 17th but knew i was well within my capabilities and i don't know why but i i developed a fear of the wet um it was we had our second race of the day at around 4:50. it was forecast for rain and i just kept telling all the mechanics if it rains i may as well go home because i'm going to be so slow everywhere i'm already nervous into paddock hill i'm really slow through clearways in the dry uh, there'll be no point doing it and so you're talking says, you're talking yourself out of the race already oh it was ridiculous and um so did someone have a word well, just everyone kept telling me it wasn't going to rain. So I was like, all right, okay. So we, we got into the car. We were all on slicks because it was dry. And as we lined up on the start-finish straight, it started to rain. And as we went round, because at Brands Indy, you get two warm-up laps because the circuit's so short. Mm. And we went round for our second lap and, it, lap, and it was raining quite heavily. And the um, the clerk of the course caught, declared it a wet race and got, brought everyone into the pits to give everyone the opportunity to change onto wet tires. And everyone hesitated because it looked like it might pass. 
and um, no one no one did anything for about two minutes. Everyone was parked up in the pits. Every all the mechanics were kind of looking at each other, looking at the drivers, and I just said, "Sod this! I'm not going to be a hero. Put me on wet tires." And as soon as I did, everyone else did it as well. Or every all activity started in the pit lane. <laughs> so I went back out onto the the start finish straight, lined up, 18th. The guy in front of me, Paul Seagrave, had a problem with his windscreen wipers and I had to come into the pits and start from the pits. So I was I was gifted a bit of free tarmac um, ahead of me. But I just thought, you know, I'll just, I'll just get this done. It'll be fine. And when when the lights went out, I, I, I kept up with the pack. And then as we went into clearways, I was just like, why is everyone driving so slowly? Everyone else must be on slicks. Like, this is, this is really weird. And I just started overtaking people. And the, the race was shortened to a 15-minute race because of the delayed start with the, the weather. Mm-hmm. And um, I came in, and I, I, I didn't quite understand what happened. I didn't know whether I'd done well or whether there was a reason that I'd done well, i.e. everyone else being on slicks. And I got into my garage, and I said to my mechanic, John, I said, how, what, what, you know, how did I do? He said, you, you finished eighth and sixth in class from 18th. <laughs> and I just went, yeah, but everyone else was on slicks, right? And he went, no, everyone was on wets. <laughs> and I, my, Andrew, my, my boyfriend, came running over to the car, like with tears in his eyes. He was just like, oh, my God, that was incredible. And it was just that, it was another light bulb moment where I was like, I'm actually really good at this. Yeah, I, I can, and, I can uh, really do this. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it, it was a case of, Andrew just said to me, you know, people can drive in the dry, but the, the mark of a, a proper driver with real skills is those that can drive in the wet. And he said, you can't fluke good results. It's impossible. He mm. said, so, you know, take this into the next race. And um, I just didn't. I my, The rest of my season was rubbish. Um, and oh, I don't, no. <laughs> honestly. So why why was that then? <laughs> well, we consistency was an issue. It always has been, and I changed from Mission Motorsport running the car because um, James Webley, who built my car, had um, got a job at JLR, mm-hmm. so he couldn't run my car anymore. And and James and I had a very good working relationship. He's I just responded to him so well. He you know army background told it how it was, would, you know, it wouldn't blow smoke up my arse or anything like that, but he would just, he would make sure that I was focused, but I was, but that I was confident and I had every confidence that he was running the car in the right way. Mm-hmm. And when, when I went over to my mechanics for the next season, they were brilliant and they've become all really good friends of mine, but I just, I felt unsettled with the change and, um, for some reason, I just couldn't, I couldn't put that potential down that I'd shown at Brands and I'd shown at Anglesey doing my next race at Silverstone. And we'd, um, we changed a couple of things on the car. So we'd given me a smaller wheel and the steering in the Cayman is heavy. I've only got one hand on the wheel. Changing it to a smaller wheel and changing some of the setup had made the steering load under or the steering weight under load even heavier. So I just didn't, I wasn't comfortable with my setup with the steering. Mm. 
And I investigated making the rack lighter. We spoke to so many people. It didn't seem like there was a, an affordable option. So I, I stuck with it. And I guess I just used it as an excuse at every single race. The steering's too heavy. You know, this is this is why I, I can't I can't progress. And I thought that the, the steering in the in the wet weather was lighter. Well, it is. And I thought that that might be the reason for my good form in the wet, but failing to be able to do it in the dry. Um, so, you know, if, if you're already defeated before you start a race because you think that your car isn't optimal, you're never going to do well. Yeah. So yeah. I did have a couple of really good races. I love Donington. Donington's my favourite circuit. I had a brilliant race there. Didn't didn't make up any um, great places on the in the grand scheme of the race, but my times were really good and I was consistent and I was just knocking set, um, tenths off each time I went round. And I, I came away from that. That was probably when I got out of the car. That's the highest feeling I've ever had from racing just knowing that I was progressing. Mm. Um, well, I mean, so, it's, it's not, I mean, how many times have you been on these tracks as well? I mean, you're, you're still mm -hmm. learning what is the perfect line for you yeah. and the car, let alone the, the fact that the car's, you know, each setup's changing all the time, you know, spanners are being used and things like that. So the, yeah. the, the, the mannerisms of your car will change all the time because there'll be little improvements made. You're not long into, uh, you know, time-wise, the number of laps you've done on these tracks either. Yeah. So, There's no you know, it, seat time. Mm, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so that's, so that's your highest feeling coming out. Yeah. That was midway through Donington. Um, so like midway through the season, um, I did race of remembrance again, um, in November. It was, it was a different setup. So I had, Myself and Simon racing on hand controls. And then Andrew, my partner, and um, Paul White, who races in uh, a number of 24-hour races and has done a lot of racing, and he's, he's quick. Um, he was on our team as well. So I, start, I started the race uh, weekend during testing 12 seconds off. I was like, oh, my God. God, what's wrong with me? But I had the previous week or the previous two weeks, I had just gone to spa and crashed my own golf, which um, probably didn't help. Not not massively. That's but, not a know. that's not a confidence booster, certainly. No, and I had a bit of whiplash from it, so oh, okay, my head so felt really right. heavy and stuff. Um, but by the end of the um, the race, uh, we finished second in class, and uh, I can't remember maybe 10th overall, but we, um, I was less than two seconds off Simon, who is the driver of the car, masses of experience. Um, and I was, I was happy with that. He's, you know, he's been doing it for, for years and he's very, very talented. And I was, I don't know, three, three something seconds off Andrew and Paul White, who are, Andrew was the quickest, um, out of our drivers, Paul not far behind, and I was I was really happy with that. So instead of trying to carry all of that into my race season this year, I just I went I went and got some help. I went to a CBT therapist and said, "Look, I need to change my mindset about this. I, I need I need you to tell me how." So been seeing her for a good number of months, and 
it's just all about my my self talk and how I I need it to be positive. Mm-hmm. So took some positive steps. I changed the steering rack for a lighter. Well, I, I modified the existing steering rack, which has improved my time so much that it, on one hand it's brilliant. And on the other hand, it's like, imagine what this would have been like if you'd done it at the beginning of your first season. Oh, <laughs> uh, where would you be now? But, could have, would have, should have. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so I've, my, my indri- I've found a driving instructor who is fantastic. We just click. We just get on so well with doing what we need to do. And the steering has given me so much time so much confidence i'm still having to undo the negative mindset that i've got given that i had the heavier steering but it's i don't think it's going to be long until i've you know if i do these things often i will that i will reprogram my brain into thinking this is what you're capable of this is what the car's capable of so we'll do this every time and then we'll improve so it is um, do you think that's going to be a combination of the physically doing it and yeah. experiencing it with the CBT and yes. the lessons that you're learning from that. Yeah, it's all a package. Yeah, it's, with, it's... with with um, CBT, mm-hmm. you're saying about the positive mindset, but this yeah. is um, if I if I understand it correctly, and again, if I'm wrong, please do point this out. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's make, it's putting a it's making a positive attitude, but it's not being unrealistic, is it? It's no. It's it's not oh I'll I'll dream of wonderfulness and everything happens perfectly. It's no, nothing God, like no. that. It's not no. hippie stuff. No, no, it- <laughs> I can't stand anything like that. It's very prag- pragmatic, hmm. and I'm I'm in the most part I'm quite a pragmatic person. My boyfriend would disagree wholeheartedly with, with that statement, but <laughs> um, I, I I deal I like I like things I can point at. You know I. When I did my university degree, I, the English studies side of it was the stuff that I liked, the literature side where answers could be whatever you wanted them to be. I, that's that's not what I enjoy. Mm. Um, so the the pragmatic approach of CBT is, you know, vis- visualization, visualizing success, um, being positive, making sure that the way I talk about things and the way I think about things are positive and just backing myself Um and that's it, it's worked really well it's worked really really well um and it will continue to work well i've i've taken a, a, a back seat from it whilst i've been building up to racing because i felt like i've needed to just do this myself but i will go back to my therapist i think um just for a little bit of a top up um and uh and get going with it but my um since having the steering rack fitted when my brands hatch day testing ahead of my first race of the season last weekend, the times were incredible. I would have been well into the middle half of my class in the race. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I made up three seconds around brands hatch on old, on old rubber with my instructor in the car. Brands hatch is like a 50 to 53 second circuit. So, that's I'll just pull that out of my back pocket. I mean, there's no yeah. problems. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I was, I, I could have, I, I honestly believe I could have got down another second, but um, I had a mechanical failure. Um, the wheel bearing collapsed and the ABS sensor melted and I braked at 125 miles an hour at the end of the straight and locked up, hit the wall. So uh, that was my first race weekend over. 
Um, I mean, we, we laugh now, and thankfully we can laugh. But um, you did you did have a picture out on social media, wasn't there? You on the the stretcher with the thumbs yeah. up. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I was like, oh, okay, okay, yes, that's that's going to be sore in the morning. <laughs> I need I needed to go and get checked out. You know, I've got metal work in my neck. I've only broken it. I've already broken it once. I needed to make sure that that it was just soft tissue damage and. Um, Racing, you know, when you have spins, accidents, near misses, when you come out the other side, they, instead of being a, you know, a harrowing experience that knocks your confidence and a near to whatever the outcome could have been, they just become heroic tales. And, <laughs> but they have to be, they have to be. Everyone knows the risks and, you know, you, you move on from that and you have to, you have to enjoy it. And if you think about the negatives, you're never going to get anywhere. So, um, well, I suppose it's a little bit like the, the, the story where people say that if you, where you're looking in the car is where you'll end mm -hmm. up. So look exactly. around the corner. So yeah. if you're looking at the negative, you know, crikey, this is, this is a bad corner for me type yeah. thing, then it's going to be a bad corner. You, you be yeah. self, self-fulfilling prophecy almost. Exactly. And that's exactly what it is. And that's exactly what my CBT therapy does. You know, I'm, she's telling me to visualize being on that podium and winning um, a trophy. And she says that if you visualize something that is, is within your capabilities, if I visualize myself winning Eurovision, that's not going to happen because I can't sing to save my life. But, um, you know, if you visualize something that you have the capabilities of doing, your mind will find a way to make it happen. And that's, that's some of the ethos behind CBT therapy. Is, is the car fixed now? Uh, it will be. Um, okay. I was meant to be at Ulta this weekend. It would have been fixed and ready to go for that. Um, but I've had to pull out because I've still got a shoulder injury from the crash. And I just, I need to be sensible. I think because I, I only have one arm well, and steering wheel. Hang on, hang on. We can't get this far into the conversation. You say, now I need to be sensible. <laughs> I'm not, like I said to you, uh, off off uh, recording i don't i'm not usually sensible it's not something that i'm renowned for but when it when it comes to i think and this is this is one of the great things about this new mindset coming into this season i've, I've added it all up and i had instead of thinking about that brand hatch test day is the worst day i've had in racing it was actually one of the best because of the potential that those times showed mm. and the improvements that i've made and the confidence that i've come away with with that and I thought if I went to Alton injured I could I could push through the pain that wouldn't be a problem but how long would it set me back for the next race for my wheelchair racing tournament that I've got in Switzerland just for general living probably quite a lot considering that it, it aches to drive my road car at the moment um, and I need some proper physio on it and I thought if I go to Alton and I risk all of that I won't be in a great mindset. I won't be able to concentrate on my racing. Potentially, the times won't be great. And all of that confidence that I've built from brands and from the off-season will be undone. Mm. So why not do what the right thing? Get fit, get my shoulder healed, get the car ready, do some testing, and go to Silverstone in the same positive mindset as I came away from brands. So well, that's what I've decided to do. That's That's... Um, that's very impressive because listening to you talk about your early racing career to that is a massive change. 
Well, ignorance is bliss, isn't it? So. Well, yeah, but but it's having the, that uh, more pragmatic attitude to it, and it's looking yeah. at bigger pictures and things like that. Other cliches. I'll I'll yeah. beat myself later well, for using cliches, but it, yeah. I, I think there's a there is a there is a marked difference in the oh well this this went really bad to now well hang on okay that that little bit didn't go well but however these bits these more these bigger bits went much better and if i do this then as you as you laid out look all these other things will be impacted yeah that's not worth doing for that one thing and it's weighing the pros and cons yeah i think um, a friend a friend said to me recently he said um situations aren't negative or positive situations are what they are it's the emotion that you assign to the situation that decides whether it's negative or positive so brands hatch was a positive day for me Mm. and i think that that's it's a good way to come out of it do you wind down at all it sounds all quite full on uh do you do you you switch off no i'm not i'm not really good at relaxing um (laughs) Even if I watch a film or something, I'll rarely get on the sofa and just immerse myself in it. I'm always trying to do other things, like whatever needs doing at the time. Um, I well, do struggle why, with that. Why I ask is because you seem to have quite a lot of things going on at once. You, got, you just mentioned there there's the wheelchair racing, which I've noticed yeah. um, through uh, Twitter. Yeah. Um, how long have you done wheelchair racing? And is this a, a new interest yeah, it's um, it's brand new. I, I first, when did I go to my first training session? I think it was November last year. Yeah, it must. It might have even been December. Um, not a great time to start an outdoor yeah. solitary sport, <laughs> but uh, yeah. Once well, again, want... bucking the trend, <laughs> I- ignoring the advice. <laughs> well, I I wanted to do the London Marathon. Okay. I um. You know, I've watched on TV. I used to live in central London. So, you know, I've, I've been around the hype quite, you know, with the local stuff there. And it's it seems like such a fantastic event to be part of. And I did um, the Wings for Life World Run last year in my rugby chair, uh, which weighs about 25 kilograms. And My God, it, your arms must be fantastic. Not at the moment, because I've been injured constantly. But, um, <laughs> what, lugging know. 25 pounds? <laughs> my, si- my size is deceiving. My size is deceiving. But, um, yeah, so the, I did that race, and um, I, I got up to 10K, because they release a capture car, and the race ends when the capture car catches you. Okay. It's brilliant. If you, if you want to have a look at Wings for Life charity and their world run, which will be taking place next year, have a look on their uh, their Twitter and their social media because they're brilliant. Um, but as I was doing that race, when I got caught by the car, I thought I could I could carry on here. I'm not I'm not done with this. I've always I've always had good endurance fitness. Mm-hmm. It's always been my my forte. Um, so having done that and then watching the London Marathon, I thought I really I'd like to do this. And I, I didn't want to do it in my day chair. I wanted to do it in a proper racing chair, in a proper race with other people in wheelchairs. And that was the motivation for going to start training for the London Marathon last year. Um, unfortunately, because of all of the injuries that I've had, I had a, an injury before my qualifying race. I pulled all the muscles in the back of my neck and I literally couldn't move my head. And the position that you have to be in in your racing chair means that you have to hold your head up 
um, to look ahead. And you lean forward, aren't you, or something? Yeah, yeah. You kind of you, you chest on your knees, your feet are tucked in behind you, and you're using what what strength you've got to kind of lift your head up and propel the chair with your arms. But um, that, that doesn't seem an ideal position for you know breathing. Uh, yeah, you can feel a bit restricted, but it's. Um, it's not too bad. Okay. But I, the, the Silverstone half marathon was my qualifier for the London marathon. And the injury happened literally the day before oh, and I no. couldn't compete. And that put me out of London, which if I'm honest, was probably a blessing in disguise because with the London marathon, if you aren't at a certain distance by a certain time, that's your race over. I think it's 11 miles. So the, the pack of the able-bodied runners isn't at risk of catching you up. Mm. Um, so I, um, I don't know whether I would have got through that stage or not, but I can make sure that my training this year going into the marathon next year will guarantee that I can do my best at that. Okay. When you're fully fit, how much testing do you do for your racing, uh, for the, for the, um, for the Porsche racing? Uh, not enough. It's, uh, uh, well, it really would never expensive. be enough. <laughs> but yeah, so this 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 was part of the question. So you have to pay for track time, right? Yes. Okay, and that enables you to certain amounts of uh, certain length of time on the track, yeah. testing whatever it is you want to test. Now that um, how does how again because I don't know this. Like I said, you're the first racing driver on here. When okay. you do a testing, do you go out there just? to say right we're going to test i don't know this suspension setup or um, are you testing many things how do, how does it work you test you test the car under feel and lap times the most important thing is the lap time mm-hmm. so you will work back from that information so the lap time will come up you'll go out and you'll set a lap time and you'll come back in and you'll say the car feels a bit loose so you know i want i want some less pressure in the tires they're overheating or the suspension needs to be a bit harder because there's too much roll, or if it's wet, the suspension needs to be softer because it's, you know, it's too aggressive for these conditions. And you you will wind back from the time you've set into the car and modify whatever needs to be adjusted. And then you will go out and with your base time that you've set at the beginning of the day, you will then, as you change things one by one, establish whether that change was better or worse um judging by the time that you do okay so you know if you change one thing and you improve your time you leave that as it is if um if your time is any worse then you change it back and you change something else okay right so and you again it's pragmatically work through one at a time usually yeah because if you change loads of things you don't know what's working and what's not yeah okay that makes perfect sense that makes perfect sense um right uh what are your aims with the racing driving? What are, what are your targets? Have you set yourself targets? Yeah, I think by the end of this season, I want to be consistently finishing within my class. I want to be racing the other Caymans. And um, a podium would be incredible. I think at the moment, a podium would only be possible in the wet. But you never know. Um so that's, and I know that seems like a, not a fantastic kind of, this is what I'm aiming for, but these guys I'm competing against are really good. Hmm. They've been doing it for a long time. They're, it's a very competitive championship. So that's one of my aims. Um, 
the next aim is to do a 24-hour race, um, which will probably happen next season. Um, I don't know what it'll look like. I don't know which car it'll be in. I don't know who it'll be with. But that is something that I want to do. And usually if I want to do something, I I find a way to make it happen. So Uh, That's become clear. (laughs) (laughs) No, well, that would be awesome. That would be awesome. Um, With with Spinal Track, what are the Mm -hmm. aims in the future with that? So Spinal Track has been going really, really well since we set up. We've had a lot of interest. We've got a list of people who've put their name forward to um, have a go at the day that stands into the beginning of next year. So at the moment, we only have one car. Our ambition is to have two dedicated Spinal Track cars so that we can can reclaim our Golf, which I'm not allowed to use since I crashed it, um, because... (laughs) You know, it, it scuppers our plans for our spinal track customers or beneficiaries. Um, but, but yeah, so two dedicated spinal track cars, many more events. And what I am trying to put in place is some driving events for people who don't have a driving license. So if people um, if people have a level of injury that is too um, uh, high, so they haven't got tricep function it means that they can't really control the wheel at speed on circuits so for people who have a driving license but aren't physically strong enough to go out on the gp circuit with the rest of the track day um, uh, participants of the day we want to create an environment where those people can come and have a go at track driving but without the risk of the other people and this will also allow people who potentially drive with hand controls or could drive with hand controls, but either have epilepsy or have um, vision impairment or something that means that their driving license has been taken away from them. Um, So somewhere on an airfield with safety procedures in place that would allow for these things to happen. I think Mm. if we can try and find um, some days like that during our calendar, I think that that will really be brilliant for the people that fall outside of the people that are eligible at the moment okay um so we're working hard we've got some big news coming up with spinal track um that we're going to announce um hopefully not in the too distant future um i know that sounds really like stupid of me to kind of like oh we've got some news but i can't say what it is uh (laughs) but i I really i really can't i really can't it's, Um, it's called building anticipation yeah (laughs) <laughs> but yeah no, so that's that's going to be that's going to be great um so keep tuned to our spinal track twitter instagram facebook because we'll we can't wait to make this announcement so as soon as we can we will okay excellent right much as i could happily talk to you for hours and hours i, I do <laughs> want to respect your time or pretend i'm respecting your time um so <laughs> let's move on to the quick fire questions at the end i told you that yeah. we test uh, the quick yeah, fire questions. I've revised. <laughs> and uh, I will start with the one that I always start with, which is uh, what currently excites you about the motoring world? I think the opportunities that it is offering to disabled drivers and to female drivers. I think that the male-dominated motorsport industry and scene that everyone is used to is changing. And I can't wait to see where it goes. Excellent. 
Uh, what currently worries you about the motoring world? Uh, this law that um, is kicking around in Europe about insurance. Um, I'm hoping that that gets dealt with or quashed. And that's to say that you, if if I if, if I understand this correctly, um, it's to say that tracks need to have, or if you go on a track, you need to have the same insurance as though you were yes. on the road. Is that yes. correct? Right. Yes. Which seems a little prohibitive. It will destroy motor racing in Europe. I, Let's hope it doesn't happen. Yes. Yes. Hopefully that's just one of those, um, oh, look at this crazy thing that somebody's mentioned that was never going to be a law anyway. Hopefully it's that. Hopefully. Or we just, when we leave, when we, when Brexit happens, it won't matter anymore. Yes. Many things Sorry. won't matter then. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, what? Uh, well, okay. Let's, let's, let's right. not get into politics. No, no, no. We won't do that. No, no, let's not do that. <laughs> It's one, well, one sanctuary go. away from it, please. It's everywhere, <laughs> <laughs> especially with the election going again. Oh, uh, God, another don't. one. Um, so what is your favourite car to drive and why is that? Oh, it's got to be my Cayman. Um, just, it's brilliant. The balance of it is so perfect. It's, it's fast without being ridiculously fast. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not scared of it. Um, is just an incredible driving experience. Um, my all-time favourite used to be, well, still is my white 911 Turbo that taught me how to track drive, but favourite car to drive, hands down, is my race car. Mm. And you've mentioned Cayman several times, and I have not mentioned what I am legally obliged as part of the, uh, as, as my contract in the Motoring Podcast is to say the Cayman is the best-looking Porsche in the Porsche range at the moment. Okay. I, ha I have to say that every time. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> um, I like that. <laughs> what has been your least favourite car to drive and why was that? Uh, I don't know whether I'm allowed to say this. I don't know whether Porsche will get angry with me. My my GT3 RS. Really? I, hate, I hated it, yeah. Why? Um, for me, personally, with my situation, I couldn't get on with the car. I went club sports. Couldn't get the chair at the frame of the chair and the wheels in the back of the car. Had to buy a completely different wheelchair to put it in the front. Put fishing the wheels through the cage was just so time consuming. The runners of the bucket seats, I couldn't move them independently. The position of the upright bucket seats was so uncomfortable that my wrists were getting um, tendonitis from having to hold myself up on the steering wheel. And I think that car on a track with the right setup for me would have been incredible, but it driving it in auto mode without changing the paddles, it didn't seem to like that. So I could never get it to red line. It would just change up at 6,000 revs. And, um, that's not what I wanted. That's not the point. <laughs> no. And I'm, I'm the only person you will speak to who doesn't like that car, who's owned one. Okay. Um, and it is purely because of my situation. No, well, that's fair enough. In case anyone from Porsche is listening. <laughs> Sponsor me! <laughs> uh, what car would you like to own next, then? Uh, does it begin with a P? It does. <laughs> and my previous comments probably don't help me in my plight to uh, get on the list for a, a GT3, uh, sorry, a GT2 RS. Okay. Uh, that's... Uh, I'm not a proper petrol head. I love a turbo. Pardon? I don't want to have to work. Excuse me, you're not a pop. 
Okay. No. Right. I think we'll let the audience decide on that one. I'm not. Hmm. I don't. I don't really know that much about cars, as my uh, my partner will tell you. Um, <laughs> and I, I don't naturally aspirated. I don't want to have to work for it. I want it there instantly as soon as I. I put my hand on the throttle. I just want it to go. The, the ah, so entitlement from a generation. Turbo. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Give Terribly. me my power now. <laughs> yes. No, I just, so a, a GT, a GT, even just a GT2 would be incredible. But it it sounds like they're only going to release a GT2 RS, and I don't, I don't think I'll make it onto the list. But that's I won't have any of the issues with the engine. Then it won't be, it won't be um, soft in in auto mode. It'll be mental everywhere. And I I wouldn't club sport it up. I'd just put the comfort seats in and no cage and make it completely usable. Mm-hmm. So. That if anyone knows that... how to make that happen. <laughs> yes, do get in touch. Yeah. Links will be at the end of the show. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what's your favourite road to drive on? Road. What is my favourite road to drive on? There are some brilliant roads up in the Lake District that I've um, I've had the pleasure of driving on that are just, they're not like anything else in this country. Um, we, we went on a, a car holiday if you like a couple of times with Chelsea car club and uh, the owner of the club near, lives up near there. And just, we did miles and miles on the, of the roads around there, which, you know, went up, um, hard knock pass mm-hmm. in the, um, in the GT three. Oh, that sounds like many, a dreadful, dreadful experience. Scrapings <laughs> of the front bumper. And, uh, but it, they're just, they're brilliant. They're, it's, you know, it's, it's almost Scotland. And, uh, if you can get the right time of year when there isn't many people there, oh, there's no, I don't think there's anywhere better. It, it is quite, um, it is quite special up there. Yeah. Um, mm, okay. Right. So all the Lake District. Right. Fine. Okay. That's that's your favourite road. I that's only it. said all the Lake District because I can't remember the name of the place that we went to. <laughs> well, don't tell anyone because then other people will use it. You see. Yeah. Keep it. This secret. is something I've realised as we've gone through. A few people have gone. Well, I can't tell you because then other people will come on my road. <laughs> Okay, fair enough. <laughs> uh, what is the most pointless optional extra you've had the misfortune to experience? Oh, see, I should have done my homework, shouldn't I? Um, pointless optional extra. I don't know. That's a really hard question. I've, <laughs> I don't think this is pointless, but quite a few people have taken the mickey out of me for this. In the 997 Turbo, there is a gap in the um the door sill mm-hmm. and it's got something in it that looks like a knife it's actually an umbrella and it's like a purpose fit gap for a porsche umbrella um and I, I i got i actually didn't get sucked into buying it i was given some vouchers when i bought that car and that's what how i chose to spend it but every time <laughs> someone sees it they take the mickey out of me so something that i don't think is pointless something other people think maybe is slightly pointless or over the top okay <laughs> final question well no no sorry penultimate question uh, which is who do you think i should talk to after speaking to you uh katie milner she is another female racing driver she's 16 might have just turned 17 she just stepped up to the genetta so she supports some of the british touring car rounds yep um She's um, sponsored by um, some of my sponsors, so we're sponsor twins. She's my much younger uh, equivalent and much quicker, but she is brilliant. She is properly talented, and she's passionate about racing, and she's just a 
brilliant person that you need to interview. Okay. I have added the name and I will, uh, as Alex Goy put it when he was on, I will release the badger to see when I can get her on. <laughs> brilliant. <laughs> um, so, well, this just comes now to round up. What are the um, best ways for people to get in touch with you if they want, say, um, now let's see if we can run through the list of many things that you do. Uh, motivational speaking or speaking. Uh, if they would like to follow your racing, if they would like to mm -hmm. sponsor your racing. Uh, I'm just trying to remember what was on your wonderful website, actually, um, the, the headers. Uh, so if people want to get in touch with you and follow what you do, what are the best ways to do that? So my website is nataliemcgloinracing.com. Mm -hmm. uh, my Twitter handle is at nataliemcgloin. My Instagram handle is at Natalie underscore McGloin. Oh, no, it's not. Sorry. Twitter and uh, Instagram handle is also Natalie at Natalie McGloin. Facebook is Natalie McGloin Racing. And if anyone is interested in donating or helping or knows anyone who would benefit from a spinal track day, please get in touch via our website, which is spinaltrack.org. And we're on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook as Spinal Track um, also. And if you can't if you can't find any of the links, you can they cr I cross over with both of them, so I can point you in the right direction if you've only found one of them. Okay, no problem. We will have the uh, links to those in the show notes as well. So if Brilliant. anybody's uh, on the website listening to this, or if they're listening to it via a podcast app, you'll be able to click the buttons and you'll be taken through. Okay, well. Cool. Um, this just rounds out for me to say thank you so much for coming on. Um, I've had an absolute blast. Uh, like I said, you you are the first racing driver, so you've helped educate me in what it <laughs> takes to be a racing driver uh, and the stuff that you lot have to do that's perhaps the less sexy side of things um, uh, that yeah. we don't get to see <laughs> or just is out of the public eye so, a bit. Yeah, yeah. But so best of luck for the rest of the season and I hope you uh, mend quickly uh, and good you. luck for your road race. Wait, Thank yeah. you. When's that again? Is it three weeks? Something like that? Uh, well, the Switzerland one. Yes. The end of June. The two tournaments. Oh, so okay. Tw 28th of May and then the following weekend, which is the first weekend in June. Right. Okay. Well, best of luck with those. Um, thank you. And hopefully the shoulder is all mended by then. It will be. Um, it will thank be. you. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been great. Thank you for having me. Thanks once again to Natalie for coming on Rearview and chatting to me. I hope you found our conversation as fascinating as I did. If you want to suggest someone who should come on this show, please do get in touch. If you use the hashtag RearviewPod, we'll be guaranteed to see it here in Motoring Podcast Towers. If you want to get in touch with me directly, search for Crack Windscreen on Twitter. And if you like to keep up to date with motoring news, opinions and car reviews, go try out the sister show, which is the Motoring Podcast. Remember, we have a Patreon subscription offer available at motoringpodcast.com forward slash support, which, if you take up, helps support the Motoring Podcast and what we produce. So until next time, that was Natalie McGloin, I've been Andrew Clues, and safe motoring.